Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. This week, Pastor spoke on hell, its reality, and our responsibility. Earlier, I had uh, Travis read just a couple of verses from Psalm 139 and talked about uh, heaven and hell there just for a moment, which is a reminder to all of us that David, the psalmist, David actually knew that no matter where he was, he knew, David had an understanding that he could never escape or otherwise evade, if you please, the reach of Almighty God. Which reminds me, and hopefully it reminds every one of us as we gather this morning, that really there are only two final destinations for us this morning. And I can tell by the look on your face, you would prefer that I speak about the happy destination. Please, please speak about the happy destination. Oh yes, either we're going to make our bed, as the psalmist said, we either make our bed in a place called heaven, or... Quite frankly, the only other choice is we make our bed in a place called hell. Which is why the mission, you know, we still have the uh, sanctuary set up for missions. Which is why the mission of Battlefield Baptist Church is so incredibly important as a collective unit. As a body of believers that have come together, a called out assembly of baptized believers. That's That's the definition, by the way, of ecclesia or a church. A called out assembly of baptized believers coming together for the work of God. It's so incredibly important. And not only for the church, it's uh, eternally essential for each and every one of us individually. The mission that God has given each of us. And whether we appreciate it, or maybe you're sitting here and you like portions of God's word, but those portions that reference an awful, horrific, terrible place called hell... We don't want to deal with those passages that much. And so whether you appreciate it or believe it, God's word still teaches us that there is a heaven and a hell that hang in the balance for each and every one of us. Someone has said this. They said, to preach the good news, we must also preach the bad news. Isn't that right? Isn't that that what we do in the home? I told my my children a long time ago, uh, listen, when you go into Walmart, don't touch that toy. The good news is if you don't touch the toy, there's going to be peace in the valley. If you touch that toy, your mother is taking you to the bathroom. And I'll let her deal with you. No. <laughs> we, but we do that with our kids, right? But somehow, somehow crazily, we don't think God works that way with us. It's okay for us to deal like that with our kids. It's okay with us for us to deal that way with our husbands and our wives and, and on and on, our family and friends. But somehow, when it gets to the point where we think that God might actually deal that way with us, we like bristle back. Nope, we don't, we don't want to hear that. Which is why I want us all, if you have a Bible this morning, there's some in the pew backs. I encourage you to get a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. You see, there's really only two destinations that we can choose from this morning. And as you're turning, this is a parable, the parable that I want us to read this morning, actually reveals for us the only occasion, by the way, it's the only occasion where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, He actually draws back the veil, if you please, draws back the curtains on the world in which we live now and the world or the reality to come. 
It's the only time also in one of Jesus' parables, it's the only time that Jesus ever puts a name or associates a name of a person in one of his parables. And so some of you may be saying, what is a parable? Well, a parable is a teaching technique that was used by Jesus over and over. We see parables in Scripture over and over in the Gospels. And it literally means this. A parable means to cast alongside. It means to cast alongside something else. And so what we find is that Jesus' parables were actually uh, stories where he cast alongside a story, alongside a greater truth that he was trying to convey or to teach. But the problem was, many times when he would use parables, the people that he was throwing the truth alongside of a story, they didn't want to hear the truth, they didn't want to recognize the truth, and because they were spiritually discerned, they were unable to receive the truth. Certainly we understand Uh, That God's word is truth and without the word of God and without the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives, none of us are able to understand truth. It's also important to note as we are, are moving here to Luke chapter 16 that this story that we find in the last part actually comes as a result of a story or a parable that Jesus actually communicated to a group of Pharisees earlier in Luke chapter 16. Notice, the beginning of Luke chapter 16, he tells the story of the unjust steward. And if you remember, the story of the unjust steward reminds us, or or really it underscores, it underscores the connection between a person's money, uh uh-oh, we don't want to hear that message today, do we? It, It underscores the connection between a person's resources or money and their spirituality. By the way, It was not a message that those Pharisees wanted to hear now. And I dare say, it's not a message most people like to hear from the pulpit today. Nothing has really changed. In fact, if you look at chapter 16 there, Luke 16, look at verse number 14. Because uh, as a result of that parable, verse number 14 tells us, and it says this, And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, now stop right there, that first parable, the parable of the unjust steward, I told you dealt with their money and the connection between money and spirituality. And then it says here, it says, and the Pharisees also who were covetous, they were lovers of what? They were lovers of themselves, sure. They were also lovers of money. That's telling us they they were lovers of what they had. It says, and the Pharisees also who were covetous, heard all these things, and then notice what they did. Because they didn't like the message, they didn't want to hear the message, notice what they did to Jesus. It says, and they derided him. That word derided means they sneered at him, they mocked him. By the way, the Bible talks about what happens when we mock God. See, there's going to come a time... As we like to joke around in the staff, sometimes we say, it's time to pay the pauper. There's coming a time that all the mocking of God will come to an end. And so these Pharisees, they're mocking Jesus, but Jesus was not swayed. In fact, draw your attention to verse number 19. After he gives a few brief remarks there, uh, after, after their comments in verse number 14, he begins by teaching another parable. He's not swayed, he just keeps on teaching. And then here in verse number 19, he gives another parable. Let's read this together. 
In verse number 19, the Bible says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, it's, it's not a coincidence that he just finished his teaching on money and spirituality. They deride him because it, and then the very first thing in the next parable, he says, there was a certain rich man. Who do you think he's talking about? Talking about the Pharisees. He's using the example of, them, them, of they themselves. It says, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Hmm. Goes on in verse number 25, But Abraham said, Son... Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. How interesting this parable is. And, and there's a, typically a couple of responses that people have. In fact, I, I don't know, maybe that was you. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing this passage. And maybe your response is, is the first one. And by the way, this response is based really on the flesh that says, Good! He got what he deserved. That man laid at his gate. I never saw him go out and help the man. Good, fine. He got what he deserved. But I want to tell you, as much as in the flesh we would like to condemn people, and sometimes we do that, don't we? Be careful. That's wrong theology. That's not right. We don't condemn people because, uh, because of or the lack of their goodness. People don't go to hell based on their lack of goodness or the amount of goodness they have. The second way to deal with this or the second response is normally when somebody hears this parable because it's the only one that really draws back the veil. A lot of times people uh, resist or reject the greater truth concerning, excuse me, concerning eternity. Because I'm guessing this morning when you woke up and you started getting ready in your top ten list of things to do was probably not to come to God's house and hear a message on hell. Anybody? Anybody said, man, I hope Pastor Greg preaches on hell today. Man, I'm really looking forward, man. Just bring it, bring it, brother. Preach hell on hell today. I'm guessing that probably wasn't on your top ten list of things to do. Nobody wants to think, guys, nobody. 
Not me, not you, not anybody. Not the people that are whizzing by on Route 29 right now as we're sitting here gathered together. Nobody wants to think about spending an eternity in a place called hell. In fact, statistics show that 60% of Americans today actually believe in a place called hell, but only 4% actually believe they're headed there. Did you catch that? Now, I don't know what you think the statistics are, but 60% actually believe there is a place or a destination, if you please, spiritually, uh, uh, a destination called hell. Only 4% of those 60% actually believe they're headed there. And then there's 40% that don't believe in a place called hell at all. They believe it's a made-up myth. However... Despite the denial of many, God's word says that hell is real. In fact, if we have slide number one, I want to show you. This is what the Bible teaches about hell. Do we have those slides up there? Hell, slide number one, slide number two? No, okay, we we got video. Okay, God bless you. Well, then I'll just tell you what the Bible teaches about hell. Amen? The Bible teaches us that hell is an eternal place of agony. It's a place of darkness and separation. It goes on, it teaches that it's a place of everlasting fire. It's a place where there is no rest, day nor night. The Bible also teaches us that it's a place of punishment, and and a place of punishment where there is no relief. In fact, hell is everlasting. Now, guys, how long does heaven last? For how long? So why would we doubt that hell lasts for forever? It's an everlasting place. Everlasting actually means it's indefinite. There is no ending to it. But it's also a place of conscious. It's a conscious place. You see, because our soul and spirit are going to be keenly aware of their destination. A separation from God's grace and suffering from God's wrath. Thomas Aquinas actually said this. He said, hell is a sense of loss and a sense of pain. I like what uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, he gives us a clear picture of this. He's writing to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talks about those who don't know Christ, those that have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse number 7 of this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this verse number 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Folks, the doctrine of hell, let me, there's no other way to say it. It is terrible. Does anybody agree? The doctrine of hell is a terrible, terrible thing. But based on God's word, it is still truth. It is still a true thing. Today, though, any suggestion of hell causes people, like I said, to bristle back or they actually, I've heard people actually question about this, this parable. They say, would Jesus even tell a story like that? I mean, after all, isn't Jesus the one who, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. 
Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Now, isn't that the same Jesus? And we say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, then why would he tell a story? Could he even tell a story? If he's the one that loves all the children of the world, it doesn't make sense that he would tell a story like this based on somebody being in an eternal place called hell while another place is in Abraham's bosom in a place called heaven. Well, guys, I want you to know when we start looking at Scripture, I want to assure you that Jesus would and actually did tell this story because in Scripture from the very first teaching message that Jesus ever gave in Matthew chapter 5 that message was laced with things about hell in fact if you go there in verse number 22 verse 29 and verse number 30 of Matthew chapter 5 Jesus never explains hell he just talks about it see there's an assumption that everybody knew that hell actually existed he doesn't go into a big dissertation to say what hell is or he doesn't talk about it. he just Tells them that there is a place called hell, an everlasting place of destruction and torment. And so he continues to teach about hell throughout the Gospels. Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 18. He goes on in several places in Matthew chapter 23, talking over and over again about this place called hell. So would Jesus have told this story in Luke chapter 16? Absolutely. In fact, if you know the Bible, you know that Scripture reveals that Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else. Not a popular message, but a needful message. Remember what that person said, to preach the good news, we must also preach the bad news. For those who believe in hell, there's usually four views of hell. There's four views. Now, a lot of other people have kind of surmised their own views, but, but those views are this. Number one, there are the literal view. There's a literal view of hell, that the images that we see in Scripture are literal images. There's secondly, a metaphorical view. The metaphorical view uh, basically uh, asserts that images are grabbing at some of the worst things possible to convey a greater truth about hell. Now, the idea... It's grabbing at images that you and I would recognize. Fire, torment, destruction, darkness, separation. These are things that in our mind we might be able to equate. But understand our thoughts and our ways are not God's thoughts or His ways. These are just used for us to understand. The other view is this. By the way, if you're someone sitting here and you say, I believe in the metaphorical view of hell, let me just say doesn't matter what word you ascribe to it, I can assure you it's much worse than you could ever imagine. Anything that you could imagine, anything that I could imagine, I can tell you it is much worse. The other view would be the annihilation view. The annihilation view of hell says that when we die, we just cease to exist. Uh, if that's the truth, then why would Jesus have had to come and give up his life as a ransom for many? If we just cease to exist, hey, let's just go... Let's just shut things down and stop all this nonsense. But that's not what God's word teaches. And then the last view there is the purgatorial view. And by the way, they're, they're adding on to the purgatorial view now. It's another view called universalism. Not the universal church, but universalism view that kind of combines with this purgatorial view which says there that a cleansing fire will eventually cleanse everyone and send everyone on to heaven. There are some theologians that are running around teaching this view now, saying that it doesn't matter. You don't have to make a choice. You don't have to place your faith in Christ. Which, by the way, that's a bunch of bunk. 
That's a bunch of bunk. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He was pretty specific on how we get to heaven. And yet there's a lot of people that say, hey, it doesn't matter, brother, because everybody's going to go there and everybody's going to get burned up. And then after you have been cleansed of all your sins, then you'll be sent on to heaven. Let me tell you, the only thing that cleanses me or you or anybody of sins is the blood of Jesus. It ain't no fire going to be cleansing this brother because Jesus has already cleansed me with his precious blood. And so we have these different views, but if you'll go back with me to our text, notice the very first verse. I want you to see a couple of differences between these two men this morning. In verse number 19, we see some things about the rich man. The very first thing we find that the rich man, he is what we call religious. He is a religious man. Listen, he obviously represents a Pharisee. Jesus did not, uh, there was no coincidence. It's not a coincidence that he starts by describing a rich man after these Pharisees just deride him over his comments on money and spirituality. And so he is, he is using, and some people say, well, why didn't he name him? Why didn't he just call him out by name? Well, it may have been that he represented a lot of people. In the story. But what we know is he's a religious man. In fact, in verse number 24, the sad thing is he sees Lazarus, if you know, he sees Lazarus up in Abraham's bosom. And who does he cry out to? He, instead of crying out to God, he cries out to Father Abraham. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because if you go back to Luke chapter 3 and verse number 8, the Jews actually believed that they were protected and were headed for heaven based on their relationship with Abraham. The Old Testament covenant agreement. We are in Abraham. Oh, but that's not the truth. And so he cries out to Father Abraham rather than calling out to God. But another reason I could assure you and maybe, maybe you could see this. Another reason I think we know that this man is not connected with God is because that verse never reveals any sense of compassion or generosity to the man that laid at his gate. Think about it. Hey, if we love God, 1 John 4 tells us that if we love God, we're going to love our brothers. In 1 John chapter 3, and I'll only show you one verse. But in verse number 17 of 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If this man would have shown generosity or compassion to the man laying at his gate, don't you think Jesus would have told it in his story? But the picture here is that he never showed compassion to his fellow man. We also see that he's not only religious, but he's rich. Obviously, he's wealthy. The one verse of Scripture, that's all we have to describe this man. But that one verse of Scripture tells us that he lived large, so to speak. He obviously had a pretty significant home, had a gate there, had the finest of clothing he, he, in purple linen and fine clothing. Uh, the story doesn't tell us how he acquired his money, but the story actually seemingly tells us that he kept it all to himself. You say, well, where do you get that? Because the Bible says that he feasted daily. Doesn't tell us about his work. Doesn't tell us about what, what he did, but it says he feasted daily. That word sumptuously in Scripture, notice what it says. It says there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. And notice what it says. It says he fared sumptuously every day. That word sumptuously means that his wealth was on display. 
He was wealthy, and he was going to let you know it. When you saw him, you knew he had a whole lot of money. But we don't find that he was very compassionate. We don't find that he was very generous. We find that this rich man, here in just a few short verses, is in a place that he never expected to be. Then we see, and, and the other thing about the rich man, the only way he's described is that he was rich. That's, that's his identification, that he was wealthy, that he had money. Oh, folks, the other, the other man in our story is Lazarus. And we see in verses 20 and 21 that Lazarus, he's poor. He's, he's sick, if you please. He's disabled in some way. He's hungry. He's begging for food day after day after day. He's at the rich man's gate. He's laying there. And the scripture actually tells us what a picture of misery that as he's laying there, these wild dogs actually come and lick the sores on this man's body from his sickness. And no you know, it's kind of like that passage in Psalms. No man cared for my soul. The man's laying there and we see this horrific imagery of wild dogs coming up and he can't move himself. He's not able to move and the dogs just lick his sores. What a picture of misery. But the biggest difference is not that one is rich and one is poor. The biggest difference between these two men is where they would spend eternity in this story. And I want to encourage you to understand that the figures and the symbols and the images from this story actually mean something. In verse number 23, notice this, verse number 23, And in hell he lift up his eyes, speaking of the rich man, notice what it says, Being in torments, this man was in utter despair. He was in utter despair in this place called hell. And in verse number 24, it adds, actually adds the image of flames. A lot of people don't like to talk about flames. They don't want to talk about torment. They don't want to talk about destruction. They don't want to talk about everlasting darkness or separation when we talk about hell. But the, verse number 24 adds the image of flames into the mix in, in, in the imagery of this constant burning or consuming fire. You know what Ezekiel said? Thy word burned in my heart so that I could not be silent. This is the imagery we see. There's a continual burning going on in this man's life. He says, I'm tormented in these flames. What is he saying? He's saying this is a horrific place. Don't come here. Don't come here is what he's saying to us today. In verse number 24, read this with me. It says, and he cried and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me. Do you know what that means when somebody says have mercy on me? He's saying, please, don't give me what I deserve. That's what mercy says. Please, Father Abraham, don't give me what I deserve. He knew he deserved hell, but he cries out for mercy. Have you ever cried out for mercy? I have. I've cried out for mercy. And there have been times in my life, it doesn't matter, I've cried out to God for mercy. I've cried out to family members. I've cried out to friends and co-workers and said, man, have mercy on me. I screwed up. I blew it. What we're saying when we ask anybody for mercy is, please, don't give me what I deserve. This is what the rich man says. He says, have mercy on me. And then he says this, he says, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger. And notice the imagery here. Dip the tip of his finger in water. See? And he says that he would dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue 
for I am tormented, I am grieving in this flame. And so we see the symbolic nature of water being used as a symbol of relief and refreshment in this rich man's life. Look at Abraham's response. In verse number 25, the Bible goes on. It says, But Abraham said, Son, remember that in thy lifetime thou receivest the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot. Abraham says, It is not going to happen. And he says, Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. This chasm, Abraham says, this great gulf or chasm speaks of the impossibility of change. I started by saying the reality is that there's two destinations. I said we either make our bed in heaven or we make our bed in hell. In this story, Jesus is using the words of this story to remind us of the impossibility of change. Please don't walk out of here this morning not knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Please don't walk out this morning just playing church. Please, because there is an impossibility of change when it comes to eternal things. You might change your order at the restaurant after church today, but we don't change our eternal destination once it's made. See, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Last week... uh, In Travis's powerful message, people coming to know Christ. How amazing is that? In Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 27, he reminded us of what the Bible says, and that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. For every one of us in this room, for everyone that is listening online, there is one time to die. That's what Solomon says. I referenced it earlier in Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to live and there's a time to die. There's one time to die. There's one time to stand. And there's one time that each and every, of, every one of us will give an answer. We will give an answer to God. And it was made clear last week that if our name is not found in the book of life, that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. James chapter 4, verse number 14 says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28, this is Jesus speaking, and he says this, and he says, and fear not, he says, fear not them which can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. He says, don't fear that. He's speaking of men that have no capability. He says, don't fear them which can kill you because they have no ability to kill the soul. But he says this, but rather fear him. Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body. Where does he say? In hell. You see, the body may die. This physical flesh is going to die one day. But my soul and spirit will live on forever and forever and forever. And like that rope that was used as an illustration last week that had no end, forever. It will continue to go on. You see, Jesus said, Fear or reverence God who has the power to do what men are incapable of doing. Why? Because the outcome, and I say it with all the love that I have, the outcome is irreversible. It's not based on your church membership. It's not based on your goodness. It's not based on your wealth. It's not based on your good works. And it certainly isn't based on our good looks. Because we'd all be in trouble then, wouldn't we? 
The question that seemingly gets asked all the time, and you guys have heard this, and maybe you've asked this question. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been the one that has purported this question, and it's this. How could a loving God send anyone to a horrific place called hell? Isn't that the question we hear all the time? How would God do that? Why would the loving God send somebody to a horrific place called hell? I got news for you. He doesn't. He doesn't. We do that all by ourselves. Travis shared more than enough scripture last week from Romans chapter 1 and then on in Romans chapter 2 that we make a choice. We make a choice to worship the creature more than the creator. We make choices to live according to our own ways, our own desires, our own thoughts. We make those choices. God doesn't, doesn't force those poor choices on us. He's given us His Word. He's given us the beauty of this creation to understand that all things have been made by Him and for Him and without Him nothing consists. In Matthew chapter 25, verse number 41, Jesus tells us that the everlasting fire of hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not you and me. He never created a place called hell for you. He never created it for me. He created it for the devil and his angels. Truthfully, God does not want anyone to go there. That's why the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, it says this, that our Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I was flipping through the Bible the other day and I was reminded in Isaiah chapter 28, verse number 21. The Bible actually references that this whole work of, uh, of, uh, of, of eternity uh, and people going to hell, it's a strange work is the phrase that it used. It says it's a strange work of God. However, because of the freedom of choice, that God gives each and every one of us. It may be strange, and I'm certain that it is a sorrowful work of God as well. To see anybody go to hell, it's also a necessary thing. You see, because sin demands a payment. And we have a choice. We can either accept the payment that was made, or we can try and make that payment on our own. The two pleas of the rich man were first, please send Lazarus to cool my tongue. I'm tormented, I'm burning up. The second request we find in verse number 27 and 28 is where he says, please send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers. Think about this. He's now, the rich man is now in the reality, if you please, of hell. (laughs) And although he's misguided in his request, instead of asking God to send somebody to his brother's house, he's asking Father Abraham in the story. He's misguided in his request. He also is concerned about his family. And so he begs Abraham to provide a miracle by sending Lazarus back to his father's home. And what we can see is this. Maybe this would be something that we could all think about just for a second. We see that the rich man's love for his own family is only adding to his torment. He finds himself in a place called hell... He's tormented in the flames. He says, send him that he may tip the, uh, cool my tongue. I'm being tormented. And then the very next thing he says is, okay, if you won't send him to me, please send him to my father's house because I got five brothers and I don't want him to come to this place. He becomes a soul winner in hell. He becomes concerned about the eternal destination of his family 
but he becomes concerned a little bit too late. Most of us today, I'm just going to go out on a limb. Most of us here probably still have family members that still need the Lord. Anybody have a family member, a friend or a co-worker that needs the Lord? If you're not recognized in that group, you need to go find somebody that's lost. If everybody that you know, everybody in your family, everybody that you work with is saved, then please go find somebody that doesn't know the Lord and tell them about Jesus. See, I'm guessing that we all have family members and friends that still need the Lord, which is why now is the time to be concerned. Not, not tomorrow. Now is the time to be intentional about our good intentions. You know, a lot of people have good intentions. Oh, I'm going to tell my dad about the Lord someday. Can I tell you? You don't have someday. You have right now. I'm going to tell my brother, my, my, I love my brother, but my brother's a little sideways on this whole thing with Jesus. One of these days, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put my arm around him and tell him how much I love him and tell him how much Jesus loves him. You don't have time to wait for that. I don't have time. We don't have time. We must get concerned today. We must be intentional today. Romans 13 verse 11 says, And that knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. We're closer to that side than we are to the other side. I realized with the birthday this past week that I'm closer to exiting this world than I was when I came into the world. Of course, my son said, well, no, that's not true. You could live to be this old. And I was like, please don't wish that on me. He was trying to double my age. He says, no, no, Dad, you could be 102, be walking around here. I was like, no, please, no. I want to go see Jesus. And I hope the Lord doesn't make me wait 51 more years. Proverbs 27.1 says, Boast not thyself for tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Look at the last few verses here. Look at verse number 29 and following the last few verses of this story and then we just close it in prayer here. It says, it says this, now remember, this is after, after the rich man's final request. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Here's his answer. He says, let them hear them. And he said, no. He says, nay, Father Abraham, but if. There's that word, if. He says, but if one went unto them from the dead. He says, then they'll repent. If one will go back from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Folks, the rich man's request is not being denied in this story because God is unwilling to give his family an opportunity to be saved. It's being denied in this story because the Lord understood, and in this story he wants us to understand that the rich man's request was useless. They had already had the word of God. They had already had the ability to hear God's word and to understand who the creator of the universe was. In verse 29, Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Translation, they have God's word. And I got news for me and for everyone in this room and those listening. The same is true for us. We have God's word. That's it. We have God's word and that's all we need. 
We have creation. We have, we have the, the, the beautiful created world. We see that we are created in the image of Almighty God. We have His Word that assures us that He is who He says He is. And we either believe it or we don't. And the, and the request is not being rejected because God is unwilling to see people saved. The request was denied because He already knew that it was a useless request. If people don't respond to God's Word, they will not respond to God's miracle. By the way, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that, my friends, was all the miracle we should ever need. You see, we look back on what Christ did. They were looking forward to what was going to take place. The Jews also had a problem. The Jewish people required a sign. We know that from Scripture. In fact, they were always looking for a sign. And then when the sign came through the Messiah, uh, they didn't recognize the sign. In fact, it's up there for you. 1 Corinthians 1, reminds us that the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You see, the rich man knew his family better than anyone else. And I'm guessing you know your family better than anyone else. And he knew. You say, why did he ask for a miracle? Because he knew his family would not respond to God's word. Why does he know that his family will not respond to God's word? Because he knows his family is just like him. And just like he didn't respond, he knows his family will not respond unless some miracle has taken place. And so what are the takeaways for us this morning? As we enter into a time of invitation, I want you to consider just a few things. What are the takeaways? Number one, I want to encourage you that God loves you. God loves you. He takes no pleasure in seeing anybody go to a horrific place called hell. And he wants the very best for you. Heaven and hell, I put down this, heaven and hell are not compensation for what we go through in life. A lot of people would like to think that. Well, I lived a rough life. The meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> the poor in spirit and on and on. We want to think about those things and twist the scripture to make it say what we want it to say. But the reality is the rich man wasn't in hell because he was rich. Did you get that? The rich man wasn't in hell because he was rich. He was in hell because, he's, because of his refusal to hear and to heed God's word. Someone has put it this way. Hell is the culmination of telling God no. 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 No, and on and on. You get the, get the illustration? You hear God's word over and over. Nope, I'm not going to get saved today because i got more living to do. No, I'm not going to get saved today because I love my sin more than I love you. No, I'm not going to serve the Lord today because I, I've got other things on my agenda. We tell God no, 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 no to his word, to his will, and to his way. i got news for you. Hell's not a place for scared people. Hell is a place for people who reject God and His Word. Lazarus wasn't in heaven because he was poor. He was in heaven because he actually believed God's Word and put his faith in God's ability to do what he said he would do. And so each of us have a choice. You say, why do we have a choice? Because you and I were all created by God and we were created for God. 
Nothing will ever satisfy you. Nothing will ever satisfy me. Although we look for satisfaction in a lot of places, nothing will ever satisfy us like him. He's the only one that will truly satisfy. But there's a choice, there's a catch, I like to say. There's a catch. He leaves the choice up to us. It doesn't matter what you're going through today. I say this, if you've never trusted Christ, if you have problems in your home, if you have financial problems, if you have health problems, it doesn't matter what you're faced with in this very moment. I say this all the time. We make choices, and choices make us. Even in your pain, you can still honor God. You may be going through something so physically uh, uh, debilitating right now that you figure maybe you've thrown in the towel. There's no way out. I got news. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. But you know what? I can still honor and glorify God through my physical pain. You may be going through financial difficulty in your home. You know, you can still honor God through your debt. You can still bring him honor and glory. You may be going through some family situation where there's aught within the family. Maybe there's some struggle that's going on. You know that you can honor God. You can make the choice to bring him honor and glory today through that situation. And you may be sitting here and you might have been someone that says, you know what, I've been playing church for a long time. I've heard about God. I know about God. In fact, I know a lot of scripture. I've memorized scripture. But I've never, ever, ever, ever placed my faith in God. I got news for you. You can learn an awful lot about God. But if you don't know him, you're going to be right there beside the rich man. And so we have a choice. This morning, every person, religious or not, in this room, whether you consider yourself religious, by the way, I, I caution you about being too religious. Just focus on the relationship. But no matter whether you're religious or not, everyone in this room is worshiping something. The question is who or what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the God of this universe or are you worshiping the God of self? The God of your job, the God of your fun time, the God of vacation, the God of your family, the God of your hobbies, the God of sports, the God of whatever. The God of what you think you're deserved or what, you, what you're owed by the world. We're all worshiping something. The question is, what are we worshiping? Many today see no need to be interested in spiritual things and are indifferent to the messages and the pleas of the gospel. Some refuse to actually believe or obey the gospel. Others are simply, like I said, so in love with their own self and their own sin that they don't want to hear about God. And sadly, there are many who put off repentance until it's eternally too late. Guys, I beg you, whatever you do, don't put it off. Don't put off making a decision for Christ. Because there's one thing I know. We walk out that door, there's a vicious world out there waiting. And they were out there, and if you don't make that decision now, chances are you won't make the decision. You're in a situation right now around people who want the very best for you. The Bible tells us in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, this was Jesus speaking. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and following, the Bible, John, tells us this, and this is the record, that God hath given us eternal life, and this life, 
Notice where he says it's at. It is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. In a spiritual sense, guys, here's the really crazy thing. We read this parable, but in a spiritual sense, you and I are like those five brothers. We're like the five brothers still waiting at home. We still have an opportunity. What's your decision going to be? Will you trust Christ today? Will you push back? Will you resist Him? Will you refuse the message of Jesus Christ? Only you can make that decision. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.